The Bible reading this morning is from Luke chapter 15, verse 1 to 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Uh, now, I know most of you here, uh, my name is Geoffrey Lynn. I'm one of the assistant ministers at Trinity City. Uh, if you're new today, then like you, I'm visiting uh, as well. And that's, partly because, uh, that's entirely because uh, the senior pastor of this church, Cameron Munro, had his last Sunday here last week. And uh, just while things are being uh, sorted out for the next stage for this church, uh, you're going to have a series of visitors um, who will be opening God's word with you. You've got me for December, uh, the senior pastor of the Trinity Network, Paul Harrington, in January, and some others uh, into the new year as well as things get worked out. It's one of the privileges that we have here at this church of being part of a network of churches uh, around Adelaide and one of the ways in which we're keen to ensure that uh, you're supported and that the, um, the gospel continues to go forward is in this capacity. Uh, so it's my, I'm delighted to be here over this next month or so. Um, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at uh, Luke 15, uh, which is the passage that the first part of which was just read for us this morning by Catherine, and we'll get to the second part next week. Uh, the reason we're doing that is because, as you've seen this morning, even with the kids' talk, uh, Christmas is fast approaching. There's much that distracts us at Christmas time, so we thought a good thing to do is just to remind ourselves of why Jesus came and what his purpose and his mission was, and we're just going to see that in a couple of parables uh, over these next few weeks. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and that it's been written for us and our salvation. Uh, We ask that as we turn to it this morning, you might remind us once again of how wonderful Jesus is and of the great joy and delight there is when those who are lost have been found. Amen. Uh, Could I please ask you to open a Bible, if you've not done so already, to Luke chapter 15. Uh, And if you take out your handouts, on the inside you'll find a little leaflet which has an outline of what I'm going to speak about. Uh, That'll be really useful for you to have that in front of you. There's a a quote that I'm going to read at one point uh, from someone which will make sense if you can see it in front of you. Uh, And... Uh, As I said, uh, we're going to look at this passage just for a few minutes this morning. Uh, Well, as uh, 2017 draws to a close, uh, I wonder what some of the highlights were for you which you celebrated. Uh, Perhaps a new job, uh, maybe a birthday, a reunion, or an exam success. And I wonder, how did you celebrate when you had those moments to mark? 
Uh, my guess that for most of us, uh, the way in which we celebrate big milestones uh, is around a meal, around a good meal uh, full of food and drink surrounded by family and our closest friends. That's generally how we like to mark and celebrate great occasions. Uh, well, the passage that we picked up in today, uh, in Luke chapter 15, of course comes on the back of Luke chapter 14. And I'll ask you just to look with me for a moment at Luke 14, verses 25 through 27, uh, because in the episode just before the one that we've come to today, uh, we find something pretty controversial. Chapter 14, verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Uh, In these verses, Jesus has spoke about the incredible cost that there is of following Jesus. Uh, There's a benefit, of course, but there's a cost too, and it's significant. The thing is, it does nothing to deter the crowds. So by the time we come to chapter 15, verse 1, chapter 15, verse 1, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. Jesus has spoken about the great cost there is of following him. The crowds keep coming, but instead of trying to save those tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, the religious leaders of the day, we discover in verse 2, they condemn Jesus. Not just for associating with tax collectors and sinners, but worst of all, verse 2, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They look down on Jesus for not just speaking with, but eating with the disreputables. And I presume the reason they do that is because in the end, uh, sharing a meal with someone is the sign of acceptance. It's how someone knows that they've been welcomed into your life, if they've been welcomed into your home. In Luke chapter 15, what Jesus is doing, I think, is moving from counting the cost of discipleship to imagining the great celebration, the greatest celebrations. And the way in which Jesus does it is with two parables, which, as is customary for Jesus, are not very subtle, uh, so you can't really miss the point. Uh, The first was that parable about the lost sheep, and the second, the one about the lost coin. Uh, And we're going to just focus on those for a couple of minutes. So firstly, the lost coin. Uh, Let's start with the second one uh, from verses 8 through 10. Have a look with me there. Uh, This is on page 1048, verses 8 through 10. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Uh, Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over the one sinner who repents. Uh, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Uh, it's not hard to work out the point of this particular parable that Jesus tells. Uh, Jesus is describing the rejoicing that you have when you find something that has been lost. And you would have noticed verse 10 is almost word for word a repeat of verse 7. Now, verse 7, just back over the page, I tell you in the same way there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Uh, Of course, whenever Jesus repeats something, it's to make the point. Um, It's pretty clear, isn't it? Well, let me ask you for just a moment then, uh, what's the worst thing that you've lost? Uh, What was it like? And perhaps, uh, if you will, you will imagine for a moment that sickening feeling uh, when that which you had, you could not find. Uh, Perhaps it was your house keys. 
maybe your credit card. Uh, or, as I've discovered, because I work with university students, of course, the worst thing that ever anyone could ever lose is their mobile phone. Yeah, their mobile phone. In fact, uh, a syndrome has been coined recently called nomophobia, uh, which is the fear of not being able to find your mobile phone. Uh, for me, at one point, I did lose my wallet, and uh, I must say, when I did, the thought of uh, losing the things in it was uh, you know, a little bit overwhelming. I thought about, the, I, mean, I suppose there's the cash, although no one carries cash, so there wasn't that much there. But actually, mostly what I thought about in my wallet was all the credit cards and the amount of time I'd have to spend on the phone cancelling them and getting them reissued. But of course, that gave way to incredible relief when I discovered that I just misplaced it. Uh, that which I thought was lost had been found. And that's a pretty trivial but minor way of trying to describe, of course, the contrast that Jesus is drawing here Compare that with the elation, the ecstasy, when someone, someone who was lost, who was estranged from God, someone who was on their way to hell, has been found and delivered home again. If such a thing takes place, the kind of rejoicing that occurs is corporate. It's not just individual. And private. Verse 9, notice what the woman does when she finds her coin. She calls her friends and neighbours together. Likewise, back in verse 6, uh, when the sheep is lost and the shepherd finds the sheep, he calls his friends and neighbours. Uh, that's because whatever the occasion for celebrating, a new job, a birthday, a reunion, an exam success, whatever the occasion for celebrating, when you do, we do so in company. Because that makes it so much better, doesn't it? You want to tell someone that something's been found and you want to celebrate in company because the joy and delight is so much greater. If I can give you a parallel example, there's not a lot of fun or pleasure in going out to dinner on your own. Having a nice glass of wine on your own. Giving some speeches on your own. Imagine, if you will, and this might be too close to the bone for some of you, imagine the Crows actually did win a flag. Uh, now, look, I, I'm from New South Wales, so to be honest, I think Aussie rules is pretty stupid. So, you know, I'm not grieving much, but I understand that much of the state is at the moment. Uh, imagine they did, perhaps one day next century, win a flag. Would you prefer to celebrate at home or with your mates? In a crowd... Perhaps at the game or the day after down at the clubhouse when everyone comes out to celebrate together. And this is the reason, of course, why Christians invariably make a public declaration when they turn to Christ, usually through baptism. It's not because they're obliged to. It's not because the baptism in and of itself changes anything. It's because they want to. They want everybody to know what's happened to them and they want everybody to come together and celebrate. All of which raises the question then, in the parable that Jesus tells about the woman who's found her lost coin when she calls together her friends, it's a parable, of course, about God. So who does the rejoicing? Who does the celebrating in verse 10? Have a look at it with me in verse 10. Uh, verse 10 of Luke chapter 15. 
In the same way, Jesus says, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Who's doing the rejoicing, do you think? Who's been invited to this celebration? Well, when it says there, in the presence of the angels of God, some people think that that's the angels who are celebrating. And I suppose that's entirely possible. In fact, it sounds almost inevitable. But I think it's more likely that verse 10 is saying that it's God who is rejoicing. God who is rejoicing in the presence of his angels. And that, of course, fits the picture of what we know God to be like of how he rejoices when the lost are saved because, well, thank God, he loves people even more perfectly than we do. Now, if I'm right, verse 10, I think, is a glimpse into God's character, into God's heart, if you like that kind of vocabulary. Christians like to talk about what God's heart is for. They talk about how his heart is for making poverty history, or getting rid of injustice, or saving the planet. And it's true. God does care about his world. He cares about how people treat his world. He cares about how people treat each other. But what God rejoices over, according to Luke 15, what for God gives him an excuse to kill the fattened calf, to have a no-expenses-barred feast, to celebrate... It's when dirty, rotten sinners repent and when they come home and when they're saved. Imagine, if you will, being invited to a party that God has called, that God has thrown, one that God has put on because he wants to celebrate in a lost person being found. Uh, Little wonder then, I think, that our songs that we sing so often echo this thought. Uh, The most famous, of course, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, The Saved, A Wretch Like Me, I Once Was Lost, But Now I'm Found, Was Blind, But Now I See. Uh, And in fact, at the end of this talk, uh, we're going to hear a short musical item that picks up on this whole idea of that being lost, being found. Well, that's the second parable, the lost coin. Let's come then to the first parable, uh, the story of the lost sheep, which also describes the joy and delight in heaven of a sinner who repents, although with a couple of additional observations. So come with me back to uh, verse 4, and we'll pick up here the first parable that Jesus tells. Uh, Verse 4, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Uh, Doesn't he leave that 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, says Jesus, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Okay, again, story is pretty straightforward. Instead of 10 coins, one lost, it's now 100 sheep, one lost. Uh, Let me say, presumably the shepherd ensured that the 99 sheep were safe and looked after before he went looking for the one. Uh, Otherwise, again, to use the cost-benefit analysis, pretty stupid decision. Uh, But, um, you know, obviously the 99 were safe. Uh, It is worth me pointing out that because sometimes in Christian circles, uh, people, I think, misuse the 99 to 1 principle. 
uh, as if to justify mediocrity or smallness. That's clearly not what Jesus is doing here. The 99 are safe. But in Jesus' world, 99 is not good enough. He wants all 100. And that means, I think, that in this first parable, Jesus is, once again, in his usual, not very subtle way, asking a question of you and me. He's asking us, are you a righteous person who doesn't need to repent? Because at one level, all of us need to. Even the Pharisees, who looked very righteous, Because, in fact, that's who Jesus is talking to. Come back to the start of the passage. Remember how it began? Tax collectors and sinners are gathering around to hear Jesus, even though he's spoken of the incredible cost of following him. Still, the crowds keep coming. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, verse 2, they mutter, this man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. Verse 3, Jesus told them this parable. So here's the question. Who's the them? Who is Jesus speaking to? Well, I don't think it's the tax collectors and sinners. I think Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Because they too need to repent. What is it that they're guilty of? Well, at one level, as we've seen consistently throughout Luke's Gospel... Every time they meet Jesus, they reject him. So at one level, they're guilty of rejecting Jesus. But I think in Luke 15, the, tax, the Pharisees and the teachers of the Lord, they're guilty of something even worse. You see, in Luke 15, not only have they rejected Jesus, but now, now they're trying to stop others as well from coming to him. They think that some people in society are beyond redemption. And so you might say that what the Pharisees and teachers of the law are guilty of here is they're guilty of ignoring the mission field that's right before their very eyes. These great crowds who are coming forward and yet they just want them to go away. Now I want to acknowledge that this is not easy for us to hear uh, because... To be frank, this is not the normal reaction you have when you think about tax collectors and sinners. Uh, For most of us, when we hear the word tax collector, here's what we're thinking, and I apologise for everyone I'm about to offend, we think accountant. Now, I know at least one accountant here, so... But she's a very dear friend of mine, so it's okay. I'm going to push on manfully. I don't know what you think of when you think of accountant. Here's what I think of when I think of accountants. I generally think of these kinds of words spring to mind. I think of boring, <laughs> dull, but generally pretty harmless. Right? Back then, tax collector, well, if you, if you were a tax collector, in effect, you were a traitor to your people. You'd sold out your people by collecting money from them for the Romans and you took a little extra for yourself. So you were looked at as a, as a traitor. Of course, we don't think about traitors much in Australia, mostly because in Australia, of course, we don't, I mean, we don't have that many enemies. No one's likely to invade us or conquer us. Uh, things are pretty mild, I suspect. This will sound extreme, but the feeling that you had when you saw a tax collector back then 
is the feeling you would have today if you knew there was a pedophile on your street. Okay? And in that kind of context, Jesus doesn't condemn such people. He welcomes them. He even eats with them. Why? Because they need to be saved. They're lost. And they need to be found. And the whole reason Jesus has come is to make a beeline for the sick because they're the, one who need, they're the ones who need healing. I realise that what Jesus is saying here is hard and it's costly. What he's saying, however, is not optional. What Jesus is saying in Luke 15 is that you cannot be a Christian and still ignore the lost. It's just not possible. Because a Christian is someone who follows Jesus. And the reason Jesus is here is to seek and save that was lost that it might be found. You cannot be a Christian and ignore the lost, I think, is what Jesus is reminding us in Luke 15. And one way to give that flesh and context is to remind ourselves that, well, in our city of Adelaide, there are 1.2 million people. In the Trinity Network of Churches, on any given Sunday, so our eight different churches, there's about 2,000 people. So imagine, if you will, that there were 50 networks of churches like Trinity in Adelaide. There aren't. But imagine there were 50 networks of churches like Trinity in Adelaide. And we still wouldn't even be reaching 10% of our city. That means 90% of that 1.2 million, they're lost. Uh, that's the reason why, for the last two decades, of course, we've been trying to plant churches. First this one, and now many others. Not for our sake, but for the sake of those who need to be saved. Here's a different way of expressing that. If you have a look on your handout, I've given you a quote there. Now, the quote is from someone called Penn Gillette, who some of you will know of. Uh, Penn Gillette uh, is from a, a magician duo called Penn and Teller. Uh, some of you will have seen their stuff on YouTube or on TV. You know, they do these amazing tricks and so on. Uh, Penn Gillette is an atheist and quite vocal about it, actually, as well as being known as a magician. He's known for some of his views uh, that are decidedly anti-Jesus and anti-Christian. I printed there for you a quote from him about evangelism. Have a listen to this from someone who's not a believer. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize, people who don't evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them because this would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. This is much more important than that. 
Well, to put it more positively, let me wrap up this talk at point three then. What makes you rejoice? Uh, I asked you um, at the beginning what you celebrated this year. I could ask the question, what are you looking forward to celebrating in the year ahead? A new job? A birthday? A reunion? An exam success? Maybe a holiday? A new relationship? Maybe finishing a job? To put it slightly differently, what makes you rejoice? What is it that you long to hear about? What excites you? What fills you with joy and delight that lasts just beyond that moment and changes the way in which you think? I think this becomes a particularly important question to ask as uh, we age, as we grow older, as we experience more of life's up and downs. Uh, we recognise that nothing lasts forever. But still... What do you rejoice in? What do you celebrate? What is the thing that you know will put a smile on your face because it has moved your heart? One of the privileges I have in my job is that I meet lots of Christians in lots of vastly different circumstances. But one thing I find is always common. The one thing that I hear for every Christian person that I observe in them, makes them rejoice, makes them smile, moves their heart, lifts them to sing. The one thing that's consistent for every Christian person I've ever met is this. It's hearing about other people becoming Christians. It's hearing about people crossing from death to life. Is that not the thing that moves you as well? Isn't that what we live for? Uh, At the bottom of your handout there, uh, I've written something down for you. Many of you know I spend my time working with university students, uh, particularly evangelical students down at uh, Adelaide University and at City East and City West. Uh, Earlier this year, as we were reflecting on the year that lay before us, we thought about what it is that we wanted for the Christian students who come along and join us each year. And of course, you want to see them grow in their maturity. You want to see them stand firm for Jesus want to see them take and make the most of every opportunity that he presents them. But here's the thing that we really wanted. Our desire is for every ESer to have the privilege of seeing a classmate become a Christian. Because we figured if they saw that at that stage of life, then for the rest of their life, they'd know what it is that we live for. Well, let me conclude with just a couple of practical suggestions. If this is the thing that makes you rejoice, if this is what we live for and this is what we want to see, that which was lost being found, here's a couple of practical suggestions. Firstly, pray. Pray because, of course, it's God alone who can save anybody. Not us with our clever words. Not us with our new church plants. Not us with anything that we try. Simply God alone who can save I was challenged by this a year or so ago when another ES staff worker from another part of the country challenged us. Uh, She said, if God answered all your prayers from the week gone by, how many people would be saved? 
That's a pretty cutting diagnostic question, isn't it? When you think of all the things you prayed about in the week gone by, good things, no doubt. But if God answered every one of them, then how many people would be saved? So can I urge you, start by praying for those who are lost. Uh, Second suggestion, uh, invite an unbeliever over for a meal. Invite someone who's not a Christian over for a meal. Uh, Remembering that, of course, that Jesus welcomed sinners and ate with them. I think this is a powerful way to someone, this is a powerful way to say to someone that you love them and that you have good news to share with them because you're willing to share your life with them. And so perhaps you might consider how over the coming month, uh, particularly with Christmas uh, fast approaching, how you might open up your home. And now actually I know many people in this church and know that's exactly what you try to do each Christmas time. You try and invite others in. Can I urge you, keep doing the same. And if you've never considered it, perhaps you might start with just one person this year. Now, of course, let me point out that before you invite someone over to your home for a meal, you probably should hang out with them a little and get to know them a bit. Otherwise, it'll come across as just a little bit creepy. Um, I realise, of course, that in and of itself takes time. It's costly, isn't it? You have to spend time with people getting to know them for them to trust you before the invitation for them to come to your home will be one that they gladly accept. I've watched this play out in a number of different ways. Um, I think about uh, one of our students who's just about to graduate. Uh, she's been doing physiotherapy for the last four years. Uh, she's just about to finish her time in her degree. Uh, she's got a bunch of friends who she's gone through with, most of whom aren't Christian. And she's made deliberate decisions to spend time with them so that she might have opportunities to share the good news about Jesus. What that's meant is that over the past four years, uh, she's done all sorts of things that they've wanted to do, even though she hasn't particularly wanted to, because that's what they're interested in and she needs to spend time with them. So she's been on pub crawls with them, when quite frankly she'd rather not go to them. Uh, She's been on uh, quite an expensive overseas holiday with them when they all went to New Zealand, which she didn't really want to do. She actually thought she'd rather spend the money on a car so that she could get around. But she thought, actually, relationships are more important than things. And part of the payoff and benefit for her has been that at the end of her degree, after four years with them, when she invited them to come to her house uh, for a... They had one of these gingerbread house-making events. All of her friends came, and they were all able to hear as one of her friends shared about how Jesus had changed her life. That's the benefit, but there's a cost, isn't there? You have to be willing to invest. Uh, For Wendy and I, uh, what that's looked like in the last couple of years, uh, we've moved to a different part of Adelaide and uh, we've um, we've started going to one of the local shops uh, where we buy our groceries, Uh, but uh, we've gotten to know one of the ladies who's on the checkouts there. Uh, And in fact, we've gotten to know her quite well, partly because we've made a point of always going to the shops at the same time when we know that she's working and uh, getting to meet her a little. She's a lovely lady, she's a little bit older than us, but one of her kids got married uh, about six months ago, and so because uh, Wendy and I run the marriage ministry at Trinity, uh, we gave her a book to give to her child for, um, a, ma- uh, for a wedding gift. Um, a couple of weeks ago, when we had a gingerbread event in our school, we invited her to come to that. And unfortunately, she wasn't able to make it, although she was really keen to be there. So next year, we're planning to invite her to our kids' birthdays. Um, because, you know, she's kind of like a grandmother-type figure to them in some ways. Bit by bit, 
But can I encourage you? Invite someone who doesn't know Jesus yet over to your house for a meal. Now, of course, I realise that in giving you these suggestions about praying and inviting, some of you are sitting there thinking, yep, that sounds like a good idea, on board in principle, but I don't know what I'd say. Some of us are a little bit nervous. Perhaps we're uncertain. Perhaps we're scared we might get tongue-tied. Perhaps we're worried we might say the wrong thing. And that's okay if that's how you feel. Here's my third and final suggestion then. After you've prayed, after you've invited someone over to your house, well, just tell them the story of how you were rescued. Just tell them the story of how you were rescued. How you were lost and now you've been found. And how you long for everyone you know to experience that same joy. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your kindness and mercy you sent the Lord Jesus. That whilst we were lost, you might bring us back home again. So we pray, give us that same heart that you have for us for all around us. We ask that as you see fit, you might use us, that there might be great rejoicing in heaven over many being saved. Amen.